Welcome. Welcome to the first of six lectures this year and next year. Um, let me say this, I'm really proud to be here. Gresham has a great and long history of providing free education. And I would like to pay tribute to Professor Jo Delahunte for all the fantastic work she did as a professor of law in the last four years. Jo, you've left me some really big shoes to fill. I can only hope that my lectures are as half as interesting as yours. And if I achieve that, then I'll be doing okay. Today is the first day of October and of Black History Month in the UK. I am the first black professor of law at Gresham, and this is my first lecture. So I want to welcome you and thank you. I know that many of you are watching from all over the world, Poland, India, Dominica, Antigua, Russia, Belgium, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the US, and of course here in the UK. These are difficult times of COVID. But in a way, this difficult period in our lives has somehow brought us closer together. I hope you are all safe and well. And before I start, I want to say hello. I want to say hello to Milena, Isaac, Megan, Alisa, Olivia, and my mum, Sheila. I want to thank Gresham for giving me this amazing platform to share my knowledge, and also to Garden Court Chambers for providing me with a place where I could ply my trade. And finally, to all my clients, past and present, this lecture is for you. Does the state really care? about your rights when it kills you. Quote, the worst form of injustice is pretend justice, Plato. Let me ask you something. How did you feel when you saw the footage of a black man begging for his life as a white police officer pressed his knee against his neck and slowly squeezed the life out of him? Did you shed tears? How did you feel when that man was crying for his dead mama? Yes, George Floyd was killed by a state agent who looked down on him despite the protests of bystanders, all caught on camera, without a care in the world. This officer apparently simply didn't give a damn when he squeezed the life out of George Floyd. Right-minded people probably felt the same way as I did, namely sick to my stomach. In fact, I haven't watched all of the footage of George Floyd's death. I cannot bring myself to watch it because I see death every day in my job as a barrister. I deal with horrible, tragic, preventable deaths. And this leads me to ask the question, does the state actually care when it kills us? 
When a person is killed by the state, their loved ones and the wider public naturally want to know the truth. By whom were they killed? Why were they killed? Was it justified? Whose fault was it? What can be done to keep it from happening to someone else? This matters for many reasons. It matters on an emotional level because anyone who's lost a loved one, a friend or a member of their community, wants to know why. But it also matters on a practical level. If the death was the fault of the state or state agents, we might expect the state to prosecute those responsible or at least take some form of disciplinary action against them. We might expect the family of the deceased to be compensated. And if the death was as a result of systemic failures, we might expect those systems that contributed to the death to be changed. We might expect accountability, not just for the state agents directly responsible for a needless death, but for the people in power whose decisions created the environment in which the needless death occurred. If deaths are not investigated, then the authorities cannot be held to account and we do not live in a democratic society. And if deaths are not investigated, we are not a society that values human life. If we want to know what that looks like, we only need to look to the worst abuses of repressive regimes, from the disappearances under the Argentinian military dictatorship, to investigative journalists on the streets of Europe being murdered, opposition leaders who were poisoned in Russia, to the murder and dismembering of Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. It should be obvious why the investigation of death is central to a democratic and free political system. So with this in mind, what do we expect from a caring state, a state that values human life? What do we expect it to do when state agents kill someone? Well, first, we would expect it to carry out a timely investigation. We'd expect the death to be investigated without delay so that evidence is not lost, memories do not fade, Families can have answers without having to wait for years with pain of not knowing what happened and why their loved ones died. Second, we would expect it to carry out a full and proper investigation. We'd expect it to question witnesses, examine documents, collect evidence. We'd expect it to pursue all reasonable lines of inquiry and leave no stone unturned. We'd expect it to find out who is responsible for the killing and whether the killing was justified or unjustified and what could and should have been done differently. Third, we'd expect equality of arms. We'd expect the family of the deceased to be represented by lawyers who are independent of the state, competent and properly funded. We'd expect those lawyers to have fair and equal access to documents, materials and evidence, and to have an opportunity to question witnesses and make submissions.
Fourth, we'd expect the state to prevent collaboration among its agents. We would not expect state agents in a death to collude with each other as if to get their stories straight. Fifth, we'd expect the investigation to be carried out by someone who is completely independent of the state agency that caused the death. We'd expect them to question witnesses separately and try to ensure that they can't collaborate to tell a false story. We'd expect them to actively look for documents, carry out proper forensic testing, search computer phone records, video footage, and root out other corroborating evidence rather than simply accepting what the state agents say. Six, we'd expect the state to provide adequate disclosure. We'd expect all state agencies involved in the death to disclose all relevant evidence in their possession and to search their records. We would not expect them to hold back evidence which might paint them in a bad light. Seventh, we'd expect openness and honesty. We'd expect the state agencies, especially public bodies and those at the top of organisations, to tell the truth and to volunteer relevant information. Eighth, we'd expect the state not to hide. We'd expect the state agents responsible for the death to take responsibility and face the consequences. We would not expect them to seek anonymity unless it was truly necessary to protect their safety or that of their family. Ninth, we'd expect fair treatment. We'd expect the state to seek to eradicate discrimination against marginalised groups. If there's a disproportionate pattern of killing of members of marginalised groups, we would expect the state to investigate it to take responsibility and take steps to change it. And tenth, we would expect the state to treat the dead with respect and not to seek to demonise the, de the deceased or seek to distract the fact that there may have been a state killing with character assassination of the deceased, his family, his friends or his community. So what in fact would the state say in its defence? What would the UK state say if it was here? They would probably, undoubtedly, answer the question in the affirmative. They would say, but Leslie, the state does care. If the state was here defending itself, it would say that the UK is not like other repressive regimes that I have mentioned. Why? They would say this. They would say that we do investigate sudden deaths, even where our agents are responsible. We do ensure that there's transparency. We do make sure there's no cover-ups. We do appoint an independent judicial officer who's tasked with looking at such deaths. It would argue, would it not, that we have one of the best systems of death investigations in the world. We provide legal aid for families where there's state-related killings. We provide disclosure and documents. We here in the UK show we care 
because we'll, we have several independent investigations, either from the independent Office of Police Conduct, which in, investigates police officers, or the Prison and Probation Ombudsman, which um, investigates prison deaths. Or in hospitals, we have serious untoward incident reports and investigation. And we've got an independent coroner. Good grief, Leslie. What are you talking about? We even have a system whereby difficult lawyers like you represent families and give us, the state, a hard time. What are you complaining about? So yes, the state would argue that the title of my lecture is unnecessarily provocative and unfair. For the reality is, it would argue, is that we are living in a caring state and one that shines a spotlight on sudden and unexpected deaths of its citizens. But what is the reality? Let's look at what the state actually does. First, we need some context. State violence affects everyone because everyone is subject to the state's monopoly on violence, but it does not affect everyone equally. Let's talk about race. According to figures compiled this year by the BBC, of the 164 people who died in or following police custody in England and Wales in the past 10 years, 8% were black. But black people only make up 3% of the general population. A black person is twice as likely as a white person to die in police custody. The disparities don't end there. Recent figures show that between April 2018 and March 2019, there were 38 stop and searches for every 1,000 black people as compared to four, four stop and searches for every 1,000 white people. The Lamy Review in 2017, which analysed the disproportionate treatment of people of colour, found that black and minority ethnic defendants were 240% more likely to be given a prison sentence for drug offences than white defendants. Black people make up 12% of prisoners. Black children make up 21% of children in custody. Think about it. As the black poet Langston Hughes said, that justice is a blind goddess, is a thing to which we blacks are wise. Her bandage hides two festering sores that once were perhaps her eyes. Another key factor is mental health. Many people have mental health crises have been killed by police officers who were meant to be helping them. I mention Ibrahim Assay, Sean Rigg, Olaseni Lewis, Thomas Orchard, Mzay Mohammed, Kevin Clark, as high-profile examples. Avoidable deaths of mentally ill people also happen in psychiatric wards and prisons. 
A Guardian investigation in 2015 found that between 2010 and 2013, there had been 662 deaths of mentally ill detainees that could have been avoided. More broadly, we know that the police, courts and prisons take a disproportionate toll on the most marginalised people in society, homeless people, sex workers, irregular migrants, trafficking survivors, people with addictions and mental illnesses, and people who grew up in foster care. We can also see that the immigration system comes with its own death toll, from suicides in immigration detention centres to the death of Jimmy Mabenga at the hands of guards while being deported, and further back in time, the death of Joy Gardner. And we don't even know how many people have been killed after they've been wrongly refused asylum and returned to countries where their lives were at risk. We know that in previous years, large numbers of asylum claims were processed on the detained fast track, which has since been found to be systematically unfair and unjust, and that some people were removed following this detained fast track decisions. We don't know how many of them have since died since removal. But state killings aren't just about direct state violence. The state also kills people in other ways. What about when the state stops a person's benefits and they die alone, cold and hungry in an unheated flat? In January of this year, Errol Graham was found dead from suffering from starvation in his flat when bailiffs came to evict him for the non-payment of rent. He weighed four and a half stones, or 29 kilograms. What about those who die of poverty because they aren't allowed to claim benefits, like Mercy Baguma, an asylum-seeking woman recently found dead in a Glasgow home, or Dexter Bristol, a Windrush victim who lost his job and access to benefits after officials questioned his immigration status? What about when a homeless person freezes to death in the street because successive governments since 1979 have sold off the majority of council housing and left people at the mercy of an unregulated housing market? What about when the savage cuts to mental health services leads to a person's preventable suicide? What about when the housing social tenants burn to death in their own homes. Then there are state-related killings because of poor decisions which relate to housing refurbishment, a lack of repairs, allowing families to live in damp, mouldy flats. The proportion of children and vulnerable adults with respiratory diseases such as asthma in premises which are full of, full of condensation, black mould, and damp, and the differential mortality rates for children in poor housing tells its own story. You see, all of these are the result of political decisions. They are the result of decisions by people in power, decisions about who matters and who doesn't. So what does the state actually do when it kills someone? How does it investigate the death? 
800 years ago, the Magna Carta was signed, which he effectively said, everyone is equal before the law. The question is, is everyone treated equally before the law in death? In England and Wales, since the early Middle Ages, the 12th century, coroners have been responsible for investigating suspicious deaths. They are the holders of the oldest judicial office in this country. Now, we are going to look at the history and the role of the coroner in my second lecture. But I will say a few things about coroners today, just to set the scene. You see, the coronial system has developed in a piecemeal fashion over the centuries. It was reformed significantly by the Coroners and Justice Act in 2009, but it is still a very localised system. Coroners are funded by local authorities and operate from local courts, and we do not have, as such, a national coronial service. The resources and facilities available to coroners are variable across the country. Coroners are like judges and, in principle, have judicial independence. But inquests are very different to ordinary or other court proceedings. We will look at how the inquest works in Lecture 2. But let me say this. An inquest is meant to be, supposedly, an inquisitorial non-adversarial process, but the reality is often very different, as I will explore later. Until relatively recently, the role of the coroner or the coroner's jury, where there was one, was a limited one. Their task was to say who the deceased was and how, when, and where the deceased came by their death. In a case in 1995 called Ex Party Jameson, the Court of Appeal took a narrow view of the task of a coroner's jury. They decided that by what means the deceased came by their death, but not in what circumstances. It was not their function to apportion guilt or attribute blame. The verdict was meant to be brief, neutral, factual statement. So their role was not really to hold the state to account. But... The picture changed with the European Convention on Human Rights because in the year 2000, the Human Rights Act 1988 came into force, making the European Convention on Human Rights part of our domestic law. And with that, one of the most fundamental rights, which is Article 2, the right to life. Article 2, as interpreted by the European Court, is not simply a right not to be killed, it also imposes a positive obligation on the state. There are three main obligations. Let me look at them in turn. The first is the system's duty, the duty to have an adequate system to protect life, including the criminal law provisions that prohibit and punish violent offences. Second is the operational duty, in some circumstances where the state knows or ought to know that there's a real and immediate risk to someone's life, it may have a duty to take reasonable measures to protect them. This applies, for instance, where the state knows or ought to know that someone is at risk from the criminal acts of a third party. In some circumstances, it also requires the state to take reasonable measures to prevent someone from committing suicide, for instance, if they're in prison 
or in detention. The third, and the one which will be most important for this lecture series, is the investigative duty. This applies where a person dies at, at the hands of the state or in other circumstances that engage the state's responsibility. In 2001, there was a case called Jordan against United Kingdom in, involving a fatal shooting in Northern Ireland. The European Court found that the UK was in breach of the investigative duty. It explained the basic elements of the investigation that are required by Article 2 as follows, and I quote, The essential purpose of such an investigation is to secure the effective implementation of domestic laws which protect the right to life. And in those cases involving the state agents or bodies to ensure that their accountability for deaths occurring under their responsibility. What form of investigation will achieve for those purposes may vary in different circumstances. However, whatever mode is employed, the authorities must act of their own motion once the matter has come to their attention. They cannot leave it to the initiative of the next of kin to, form a, uh, to either lodge a formal complaint or take responsibility for the conduct of any investigative procedures. It, Jordan goes on to say this. For an investigation into alleged unlawful killing by the state to be effective, it may generally be regarded as necessary for the persons responsible for and carrying out the investigation to be independent from those implicated in the events. This means not only a lack of hierarchical or institutional connection, but also practical independence. In other words, uh, if you are investigating a death, you shouldn't, for instance, get an expert from the organisation you're investigating and ask that expert to produce a report on whether that organisation has breached its duty. Jordan goes on to say, the investigation must also be effective in the sense that it's capable of leading to a determination of whether the force used in such case, cases was or was not justified in the circumstances and to the identification and punishment of those responsible. This is not an obligation of result, but of means. The authorities must have taken reasonable steps available to them to secure the evidence concerning the incident, including, amongst other things, eyewitness testimony, forensic evidence, and where appropriate, an autopsy, which provides a complete and accurate record of the injury and an objective analysis of the clinical findings, including the cause of death. Any deficiency in the, the investigation which undermines its ability to establish the cause of death of the person or persons responsible will fall foul of this standard. End of quote. You can see that this standard incorporates many of the points that I made right at the outset of this lecture about what we would expect a caring state to do when someone dies at the hands of state agents. On the facts, it found that an inquest in Northern Ireland where the task of the coroner was even more restricted than in England and Wales did not satisfy this obligation. In 2004, the House of Lords in a case called Middleton accepted that in order to comply with the Article 2 duty, the role of the coroner, where persons had died 
at the hands of the state needed to change. They said that compliance with the investigative obligation, quote, must rank among the highest priorities of a modern democratic state governed by the rule of law, end of quote. Middleton involved the death in a prison. The House of Lords spoke of, quote, the need for an investigative regime which will not only expose any past violations of state substantive obligations already referred to, but also within the bounds of what is practicable, promote measures to prevent or minimise the risk of future violations. The death of any person involuntary in custody of the state or otherwise than from natural causes can never be other than a ground for concern. Today, therefore, we have an Article 2 inquest, which is more expansive than a normal inquest and is generally the primary means by which the state carries out its investigative obligations when it's accused of killing one of its own. So, when does this obligation apply? It obviously applies when the person's killed by the police, prison officers or other state agents, but it's not limited to those cases. It applies, for instance, to cases where a person commits suicide while in custody. A number of cases have established both that the state has an operational duty to take reasonable steps to prevent people from committing suicide while in custody, and that if a person does commit suicide in custody, the investigative duty applies. The Article 2 investigative duty can also apply more widely to deaths on which the state bears responsibility in a broader sense. In On a Yaldilis against Turkey, the European Court found there was a breach of Article 2 in respect of a disaster caused by a poorly maintained rubbish dump. In Budayeva against Russia, it found that there was a breach of Article 2 in respect of a failure to protect people from a natural disaster. So too, in Grenfell Tower, it's been accepted that the Article 2 investigative obligation is engaged. And as you know, that was a terrible tragedy where so many people lost their lives in a fire in a tower block. This is an area where we need to push the boundaries and press the state to take responsibility for the killings which aren't directly the result of state violence, but which are caused directly or indirectly by state policy. Over the course of this lecture series, we will be taking an in-depth look at how inquests work, their successes and their failures. Throughout this lecture series, I want you to keep in mind what I said about how would we expect a caring state to behave when agents of the state kill someone. I want you to keep those things in mind when we're talking about how our state actually behaves. In theory, an inquest is an inquisitorial, non-adversarial process in which there are no parties as such. But in practice, Article 2 inquests are often battlegrounds in which state agents with their own publicly funded legal teams fight tooth and nail to defend themselves. In that regard, one of the long-running battles has been over the right of the bereaved family to participate meaningfully and fully in an inquest. The European Court has accepted in a string of cases that the next of kin of the deceased must have the right to participate in the inquest. But this has been a long and difficult battle. 
Many of the victories have been down to the hard work of the organisation Inquest, an organisation which works with the bereaved families of those who have died at the hands of the state. In England, our legal system does not automatically pay for bereaved families to be represented at inquest. In some circumstances, the Article 2 investigative obligation requires legal aid to be granted for bereaved families to participate. But there are many major barriers. A family has to make an application to what is known as an exceptional case funding app application. And it's normally means tested. It's a difficult process. And Inquest has been campaigning over the years for automatic legal aid for brief families in state-related deaths. We will be talking about this in Lecture 3 when we look at the quality of arms argument and the difficulties that bereaved families face. Let me just add this. Just think about this. The state kills your loved one. The state pays a ton of state lawyers to represent itself that you are paying for through your taxes. And then the state expects you to put your hand in your pocket and pay for your lawyer when they have killed your loved one. In lecture four, I shall explore police violence. This lecture is entitled, The Police Need to Exercise More Restraint When They Restrain. I wrote this lecture at the beginning of the year before the death of Lord George Floyd. And we have seen a number of horrific cases in the States where, in the main, black people are killed at the hands of the police. This received worldwide attention this summer with George Floyd's murder under that police officer's knee. But we have our own cases in the UK with people saying they can't breathe and dying under restraint. It may not have escaped your attention, but one, of, one case that is currently in the courts as I speak in London is the case of Kevin Clark, who was captured, his death was captured on body cam footage, saying similar words as he was being restrained by police officers. He died shortly afterwards. This case is currently under consideration, so I won't make any further comment on it. What lessons can be learned from these cases? How can we prevent these deaths? I will look at in detail in lecture four. Another long-running battle is about secrecy. For instance, should the identity and faces of police officers involved in a killing be shielded from the family and the wider public? Should the state be allowed to defend its actions by relying on sensitive documents that it cannot or will not disclose to the family? When should an inquest happen behind closed doors? How should the need to safeguard sensitive information be balanced against the rights of the family and the public to know the truth? What is the open justice principle? We will be considering this in lecture six. 
How, it, how effective is the inquest process in terms of holding the state to account? In this regard, we will look at not just the inquest itself, but what happens after the inquest. According to Inquest, the, the organisation, there have been 1,755 deaths in or following police custody since 1990. In that time, no police officers have been convicted of murder or manslaughter in relation to deaths in police custody, although there have been 10 unsuccessful prosecutions. In fact, I am not aware of any successful prosecution of a police officer for homicide in this context. Even when two police officers were convicted in 1969 for a brutal and degrading campaign of, of racist abuse against David Oluwale, a homeless man, they were acquitted of his manslaughter and convicted only of assault. While there have been a number of unlawful killing verdicts at inquest since 1990, some of them in cases in which I have been involved, none of them have, have resulted in successful prosecutions for murder or manslaughter. So the long and short of it is this. Even when an inquest returns a verdict of unlawful killing, the police officers involved are really held to account. I accept that the Article 2 obligation is an obligation of means, rather than result, but can we seriously believe that none, none of those 1,755 police killings since 1990 constituted murder or manslaughter? Can we really accept that the system is working? Now, we need to turn to race, class and disability. As I outlined earlier, state violence affects everyone, but it doesn't affect everyone equally. Black people and people of colour, poor people, homelessness people, people with mental illness are all particularly at high risk from state violence. This is something that features in the Article 2 case law, and there is a string of cases in the European Court that involve the racist killings of Roma people in continental Europe. In some of these cases, such as Nachova against Bulgaria and Angelova against Bulgaria, the European Court has looked at the relationship between Article 2, the right to life, and Article 14. Article 14 provides that human rights guaranteed by the European Convention have to be guaranteed without discrimination. In those cases, the European courts have emphasised that where there is evidence of a racist motive for a killing, Article 2 and Article 14 require the state to investigate the racist motive. Non-discrimination doesn't always involve treating everyone the same. Sometimes it requires different situations to be treated differently. Where a person has been killed because of their race, the role of racism cannot be ignored but we need to push the boundaries of this principle. It's one thing to say where there is evidence of explicitly racist motives for a killing, the state should investigate it, but very few people would disagree with that. But we need to go further. We need to look at the patterns of discrimination in society as a whole, not just the motivations of individuals. In this regard, there's another European court case which is in a completely different context. That's DH against Czech Republic. 
This case was about the education system in the Czech Republic, where st um, statistics showed that Roma children were overwhelmingly placed in special schools for the mentally disabled, and that very few were placed in mainstream school system. That wasn't an Article 2 case, but it's an important case, because nonetheless, the Strasbourg court looked at the statistics to draw an inference that discrimination was taking place. The discrimination was not explicit. There wasn't an explicit policy of putting Roma children in special schools, but the discrimination was nonetheless very real and very visible. This is an area I'd like to see as a key battleground legally over the next few years. As the death of George Floyd and with the Black Lives Matter protests in the US and here have now seen renewed attention to racism in the criminal justice system here in England and in our systems more broadly. Now is the time to talk about race, class and disability and to press the courts to pay attention to it and to push the boundaries of Article 2 and the Article 2 investigation. I want to conclude by talking about bereaved families. Over the course of my career, I've worked with many people who've suffered unimaginable pain of losing a loved one. Many of them have added pain of knowing that their loved one was killed by the state. As a lawyer, I know that the legal process is often brutally traumatic in its own right, but I also know that finding out the truth can bring closure. Over the course of this lecture series, we'll be talking about how inquests impact upon the bereaved families, what barriers they face to meaningful participation, and what could be done to improve the process for them. So, so often we lawyers talk about the law without centering on the people who are most affected by it. I hope that throughout this lecture series, the voices of the bereaved will be heard and centered. I want to end this lecture with the words of Tum. Hello, Tum, I know you're watching tonight. A bereaved father who lost his baby son, Hayden, and was failed by the inquest process. Tum wrote to me, and I quote, society cannot give me my son back, his life, but we can, in his death, give him the right to an honest and correct accounting of the way he died. It pains me to my core to know every single day that the public record of how he died is wrong, for untruths to be held on public record is nothing less than an injustice. It dishonours the memory of my son. I shall now take questions. Very, very much. What an amazingly dazzling start to your professorship. And you've, um, you've teed up all sorts of themes that we're now very much looking forward to hearing over the next little while. Now, there have been a lot of questions, and there's no way we're going to cover them all um, <laughs> unless we stay here till midnight. Perhaps you're not doing anything else this evening. <laughs> but let me just start. I'm going to start with one that um, has been asked um, and has got nine other people who want to know the answer to the same question, and it's this. Can the state actually care or have feelings of any sort? Politicians may care, possibly do feel quite strongly about such issues, 
but the institutions of the state, civil service, local authorities, etc., as political social institutions, in my view, cannot be said to care. They just follow regulations, and these may or may not allow for acts which show a duty of care, but feelings, hardly. I think it's, a, I think it's an excellent question. What, what I will say is this. What we can ensure is that we can ensure that the, the state and the systems and the regulations that it has in place are caring um, regulations. They, they, so, for instance, when somebody um, applies for um, public funding, um, we can have a system in place whereby it makes it easier um, that we can reverse the burden that somebody should get funding unless there is um, good reason why they shouldn't. So, we, so there are things that we can do that, yes, we've, we've got a, a, a cold regulatory state, but if we put in place um, systems that make it easier for brief families, then it, I, I think we can achieve something closer to um, caring than what we currently have. Very good. Um, I'm just going to follow that up with another one here, um, which says, if the state cares, why does, it, why does it routinely refuse to implement recommendations in future death reports? Why do that resort to institutional defensiveness and collude with, the, with other agencies to avoid the whole truth being told? It's one of those things that really... Um is a bugbear for me. It's one of those annoying things. Um, and I, I actually agree with the sentiment in the question. I've done too many cases where recommendations have been made and repeated time and time again. Let me give you an example. Um, I've been doing restraint death cases. Those are cases where somebody dies um, whilst being restrained by police officers and they either die from positional asphyxia or restraint asphyxia. I've been doing these cases for the past 25 years plus. In the very beginning, when I first started doing this, these cases, the science behind such a condition wasn't particularly well known. You would go into court, you would question an officer on the concept of positional asphyxia, and they would say, positional what? However, I have to say that the police forces up and down the country, um, when we had those early um, results, if I can put it that way, where juries and coroner's courts were highly critical of um, the way in which people were restrained, began to educate police officers up and down the country. Fast forward to 2020. You can't go into any police force in this country and say positional asphyxia and a police officer doesn't know what it is. They've all been trained on it. They all know what it is. But, and this makes me want to pull my hair out, why on earth, if police officers have been trained in these concepts, know what the risks are, know that you, know, you don't detain somebody in the prone face-down position for a prolonged period of time, know that you know, there are various positions that you can um, restrict the mechanics of breathing. 
Why is it that time and time again, we still have these restraint cases? And it's as if there has been no learning. And this is what makes it worse. It makes it worse because it's not as if these police officers who come before the courts time and time again are coming from a position of ignorance. They know. And so the prevent future death reports that have been issued become meaningless. What's the point of having another report saying you you shouldn't restrain somebody in this way? And then two years later, you have another report saying don't restrain somebody in this way. And then a year after that, you have another report saying the same thing. And yet every year we are seeing deaths in the same way, same all you need to do, Simon, in, in many of these cases, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry if I'm speaking passionately about this because I'm tired. I'm tired of this. But, you know, you, all you need to do is just cross out the name of one bereave and insert another name of another bereave and the facts fit because it's the same thing that's happened in time and time again. So I agree with the, 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 the sentiment of the question. Wow, yes, that's um, quite an answer. And here is quite a question. This is the top, our top-ranking question, uh, originally asked by a lady called Claire Sandbrook. Um, 19 other Hi, people, Claire. 19 other people want to know the answer to this. Grenfell tenants' grievances were not of much interest to the media until after disaster struck. How do you think UK media needs to change so that issues such as housing inequality and racist policing are more likely to be scrutinised and reported in ways that might help prevent harm? Well, firstly, if you look at what happened in Grenfell um, immediately afterwards, I think the press and the media have a lot to answer for in the initial uh, immediacy afterwards because there was a lot of demonisation of the deceased and the residents of Grenfell. Uh, They were made, you know, they, they were seen as sort of like um, benefit, um, uh, you know, these people on benefit, um, um, cheaters, um, uh, illegal immigrants. You know, that was the narrative. If you look, if you look back on some of the media uh, um, um, reporting early on, that was the narrative that was given. Now, the media needs to take a lot of responsibility in terms of this, these cases. It's only afterwards they realised that actually the real narrative in relation to Grenfell was um, tenants not being taken seriously, years of complaints, um, cost-cutting, local authority um, not properly monitoring um, the cladding, and a very different story um, turned up. Now, Claire, I, 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 I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know what the, the answer to the question is, other than the media needs to take much more seriously its role in reporting these issues. And it's not... Grenfell's not a good example, but another example is um, when Mark Duggan was shot dead. There was a demonisation of Mark Duggan in the um, period shortly after his death. You know, he was portrayed as this big gangster. I remember doing the inquest, and we started the inquest, 
and the local London paper ran a, 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 a series of articles in the first week of the inquest about gun crime uh, in, in London. All of these things have an impact on the jury. Now, I don't know why, I don't know what the um, um, rationale is behind this demonization of the deceased, I can guess, but responsible journalism needs to realize that we need to find out the truth. Um, we shouldn't jump to conclusions and we need to have a fair and balanced reporting of these deaths so that the truth can come out and not be skewed. Very good. So um, we have a question here, which is we haven't yet really covered, and it may be in your future lectures you're going to cover it, um, medical deaths. But there is a, a question here um, from a lady called Maggie Brooks saying, why is it so hard to get Article 2 for hospital death at inquest? Um, that is something that I will touch upon in, in, uh, in a later lecture, but simply because the courts have decided that um, the way that um, medical deaths are investigated can be properly done with um, the medical negligence claims. And therefore, because um, families do have a claim in medical negligence, the um, European courts have, uh, have said that that's a proper vehicle um, for these type, type of claims. Uh, unless, you, unless you've got a situation, a medical case, where you've got somebody who's had their, um, their liberty taken away, so somebody with a, a psychiatric problem and, they, and they've had their liberty taken away, you're not going to have an Article 2 injection. But the short answer, Maggie, is because these cases you've got a, a remedy in the civil courts. And there's yeah. a number of cases that um, make, make that clear. That's a very good, clear answer. Um, are you happy to keep on going for a couple more? I'll take a couple more. Excellent, great. We'll just have, have a couple more then. Um, is there any good research or action underway to look at the ongoing traumatic impact on families of individuals who've been killed by the state? I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I, um, that's something that I can certainly investigate. Um, I, I will ask inquest um, about that. If, if anybody will know the answer to that, um, inquest, the organisation, knows the answer to that. So I will ask inquest that. All right, last, the last question here, um, which is quite an interesting one. Should we expect the state to apologise when no one is prosecuted? Do you think an apology can be enough to remedy a lack of prosecution? That's a difficult one. It, it, it depends on who you're asking, and because what remedy is needed is very individual to a family. For some, for some families that I've represented, uh, all they ever wanted was an apology, and that, that was it. They, they, they wanted somebody to come up to them and to acknowledge the death of their loved one. And um, we've done cases where we've been at loggerheads and it's been very uh, um, aggressive, it's been very difficult. Um, we've been in different bunkers and it's just been very unfortunate. There are other um, families that I represent and uh, an apology is not enough. Um, they, you know, they want accountability, they want officers um, prosecuted, 
Um, they want compensation. And that's fine. Um, th there is no one size that fits all. Um, for, for my part, I think the state could learn a lot if it was more disarming in terms of acknowledgement when things go wrong, acknowledging it early, um, giving an early apology, and keeping the heat down in these hearings. Unfortunately, in, in a lot of the cases I've done, that, that doesn't happen. Well, thank you very much. What a, as I said before, dazzling inaugural lecture. We yeah. look forward to your next lecture. Yes, uh, the next lecture is going to be on the 3rd of December, same time um, as today, and it's going to be Who Investigates Sudden Deaths? So that's going to be an interesting one.